Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. Today's conversation is with Danny Matei. He has done awesome things on the business side of sports physical therapy. Very specifically, Danny runs ptbiz.com, and they consult both startups in the cash industry as well as practices that are looking to grow and explode. He really has done an awesome job of dialing in his niche. He works with cash-based practices that cater to the athlete, and he works with over 250 companies nationwide now. He brings a unique mindset and a unique outlook in that he doesn't have any formal business training, but he brings together all of that which is necessary to take your business to the next level. I really appreciate our conversation just for how candid Danny is and how open to helping he is. He knows how much value he brings to the entrepreneur. And you're going to hear that throughout today's conversation. Make sure you pop over to Instagram, give him a follow, sign up for some of his courses. I learned a tremendous amount looking over his courses, even though I'm not in the cash-based PT business and model. Uh, really some great insights here. So without further ado, here's Danny Matei. Please share this conversation with any entrepreneur, anyone in the business field who's looking to just grow and better understand their numbers and what it takes to take their business to the next level. Leave us a five-star review wherever it is that you are listening. Can't wait to learn from Danny. Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. This one is I know going to be near and dear to my heart because I do so much talking clinically, diving into pathology and pathophysiology, but I freaking love the business side of, of physical therapy. And there is no one that knows the business side better than my guest today, Danny Matei. Danny, welcome aboard. This hey, is where you yeah, say thanks for thanks having, for having me. me. There uh, we go. <laughs> Yeah, it's always it's always fun to be on the the receiving end of a podcast. I do so many where I'm talking to other people. It's always great to be a, to be a guest. Well, you come highly recommended by now a dear friend of mine, Kelly Sturet, um, who's been an inspiration to my career. And I'm just talking to him yeah. about what I want to do with the pod and um, things and people that I think would be awesome to bring on. He's like, you got to talk to my guy Danny. So I did a bunch of research on Danny. Um, and obviously, um, you're up to snuff on, on the business side. I I've worked with a number of consultancies. I've worked, um, with just business consultants and business coaches. I've worked with PT specific business coaches. Um, you run PT biz as a consultancy. Tell me what's different about your consultancy than everyone else out there. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I mean, first of all, um, yeah, Kelly. Ke thanks to Kelly. I didn't know that was the mutual connection. You know, he's a uh, dude, like one of the most influential people in my life. Like he's like a big brother. And, uh, it, you know, I, I like to think like if it wasn't for him, I'd, you know, I probably would still be in the military, you know, chipping away at my my rank and career and whatnot. And, and I've got a chance to do so many other things that I didn't think I'd be able to do. And it really a lot of it 
um, I would say, you know, it comes because of my, my relationship with Kelly and Juliet, his wife. So I really appreciate the connection with him. Um, now uh, to PT biz, you know, uh, the, I think what's interesting about PT biz is that we are just very, very focused on, you know, cash-based clinicians and hybrid clinicians that really want a big element of their practice to be cash-based. Most of the practices that we work with, we would consider more in the performance sort of lens. These are people that are, they're not just working on, you know, uh, not to say anything's wrong with this, but just like more traditional sort of post-ops and getting people that are, you know, Medicare age back to activities of daily living and things of that nature. Like these are people that um, have a strong strength and conditioning bias. Uh, they, they want to work with people to help them um, improve their health and live a, a pain-free active life for as long as they can. And we really feel like the business model around that is something that we understand very, very well, primarily because my wife and I, you know, we started our own practice like this, um, you know, a, a decade ago and had successfully ran and then sold that business. Um, and we got to see firsthand just how, just how much we can help people once we get past pain, because like pain is just, they're there because of that. But then, then we have a conversation about sleep and movement and nutrition and stress management and like goal setting for things that they want to do. And all of a sudden we have this opportunity to have this great business wrapped around people that we have to help that don't know this stuff, you know, and they, no one's teaching them. Um, and we get a chance to gain their trust and really help them long-term. So I think what PT biz is unique is because if, if that sounds like you in any manner whatsoever, that's the business that we know the best. Like, you know, if you're trying to scale a 12 clinic insurance based clinic, that's not our wheelhouse, dude. I don't know what to do with that. I'm sure there's plenty of other people, but if, you know, if you're a more performance based clinician and you want to, you know, grow that's practice. Me. That's, that's yeah, me. you do. There you go. That's and, and, and that's what I'm saying. I think everybody needs to find their niche, right? Yeah. Like, and, and that's great. Cause that's not, I know nothing about it. And, but for my people and the people that we help, I mean, dude, there's nobody that's as specific to that, um, you know, type of a practice as, as we have, and we have now at this point, 225 businesses we're working with on an ongoing basis alone. And we get a chance to get those people together a couple times a year, dude, it's just such a cool environment for that type of an individual. That, that's really awesome. Um, I love the way that you've dialed into your niche and you, it sounds like you really know yourself. Like, here's exactly what I do. Here's what I'm great at. When I asked you before we kind of hit record, what your specialty within this consultancy is, you said, we do two things. We help you start and we help you scale. And, and you're somewhere, and, yeah. and if you're not one of those two things, maybe we're not perfect for you. So I love that as the consumer, you know exactly kind of what you're after. I love the idea of you pulling people together for this retreat style um, education. Tell me a little bit more about that. What is that like? Yeah. So this is something that we started and I didn't know what to call it. So we just used a general term mastermind, which I actually kind of wish we hadn't, uh, started saying just cause it sounds weird. It sounds like, you know, people, you know, getting together to think about how they can take over the world. And that's for us, basically, you know, it's just a, it's, it's our business development, um, you know, group that we work with on an annual basis. So everybody we get, we're working with, um, you know, we get a chance to work with them for a year. Most people that are in that, in that, uh, mastermind have been there for on, on average two to three years. Uh, we have people that have been there for five. Some people are there for one and take what they learn and they run with it. But basically it's how we organize businesses, um, over a 12 month period to learn how to actually, you know, gain the skills of sales, marketing, people, and processes. So how do you actually, you know, build these four core areas? Um, and what we do is, you know, twice a year we get together in person. So we'll bring a, 
guest presenter in, for instance, Kelly, you know, is like an example of somebody that's presented at, at, uh, at our events. We come together twice, twice a year. We do a workout together one day. We have a big dinner one night. We, you know, we do big group, uh, sort of development stuff with guest presenters and get everybody organized on their business. And then we do small group development stuff. And, and all along the way, it's a huge networking opportunity for people to meet other clinicians that are just like themselves all over the country. And now you have literally like hundreds of people you could just hit up if you were in town for, you know, for, for a night and grab dinner with them. And it would be an awesome conversation because we are so strict about who we let in the damn thing to, for, to begin with. Like we just cannot have the wrong type of person in there. Otherwise it ruins the whole thing. And, you know, five years ago, there were five people that I sat at a dinner table with and we started working with them in this capacity. And, you know, fast forward, September, we'll be in Denver and we'll have probably, you know, 220 or so businesses that will be um, at that. And the size has changed, but to be honest, man, the culture of it and, and what we focus on is exactly the same. That sounds incredible. How much does it cost to be a piece of this? Yeah, if you want to work with us, I mean, you know, once I was once told you can't have great and cheap at the same time, you know, we're great at what we do and it like costs that. about $20,000 a year to work with us, the businesses that we work with. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and you know, and, and the reason why is, uh, we we get amazing results. You know, the average business that we work with increases their business by about 120% the first year that they work with us. So when we look at, you know, ROI comparison, it's pretty easy for us to have that conversation with folks. And what's been really cool is to be able to grow a coaching base. Like we have 13 coaches and all of these coaches are either, you know, high multiple six or seven figure business owners themselves. And most consultancies that are in our space in the cash based world, the people that are teaching haven't even done that themselves. They just found that it's easier just to try to teach other people stuff because running a business is hard. Um, you know, so I think what's interesting about us is that we actually have like legitimate entrepreneurs that are successful and currently running their own successful practices that are in it every day with us, which is awesome. We get a chance to do that 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 dude that's a selling point because to me that sounds like graduate school and the massive mistake i made with graduate school when you look at these rankings and you're looking at all the um the way people look at the institutions they're ranked based upon mostly research and the question i should have been asking which i wasn't was what are those professors doing are they helping athletes get better with me as my you know sports leading right. and and Nine out of 10 times, they're not. I went to a graduate school that was heavy, neuro-based, hospital-based. Those guys hadn't, had never seen an athlete. So how are they going to help me work with an athlete? And so it sounds like similarly with PT biz, like, you know, those who can't do teach too often. Um, and that sounds like you're kind of bucking that trend. Yeah. So I love that, that, that you've got schmucks like me in there who are running a business, teaching others how to do it. There's probably no better teacher. Yeah. And I mean, I, I look at it through the lens of a clinician, right? Like I don't know any different. I didn't go to get an MBA. Like I didn't go to business school. I don't have traditional business training by any means. Um, and you know, what, what I feel like we've lost is sort of this, um, apprenticeship model. Like it just doesn't exist, uh, outside of the trades. And if you look at the clinical world, the best way to get better is to find a clinical mentor that is doing what you're doing, that you want to do and, and try to get as close to that person as you can and learn from them Jeez. for, you know, and, and it, I would take the shittiest job to, to be with the best person, you know, like I did this when I was, when I was at Baylor, 
uh, we had an opportunity to spend a year in an ortho clinic. Um, and, and a lot of people pick proximity. They wanted to go to the hospital that was connected to the Air Force base and, and the Army base because it was, you know, it was right there. And that's what we're going to be doing anyway. We're going to be active duty and working with soldiers. And there was one guy that I knew was a le- elite manual therapist. And it was like 30, 40 minutes from where I lived. Civilians, so I was wearing civilian clothes all day. And I was like, that guy, I want that guy. And it was a great decision. It was an awesome decision because I got a chance to learn from this person that really helped me fast forward for what I was trying to do as far as clinically, you know, uh, is concerned. And when we look at the business side, yeah, it's all theory. People are throwing theory around, but it's like, dude, what's working right now? Because I can tell you, you know, I could, I could pull a dozen people from our mastermind right now and we can have a conversation about, hey, what's working as far as local marketing is concerned? And then distill that down. And all of a sudden, we have this unique advantage because we have people in all these different demographic areas, but a very similar niche. And it's almost like a franchise minus the fact that we don't own any of your business. There's not this big, like, ongoing percentage of your revenue that you pay us. You know, it's just basically, you know, aggregated information that we get a chance to share. And then you get to stick around as long or as as short as you decide that you want to based on us having to continue to provide value, which we felt was a lot better of an option for the consumer and it made us have to be really good at what we do in order to keep clients that that's so unique and and drills down to exactly why i would sign up for a consultant um the ones that i've swung and missed that in the past um, were exactly that they were far too textbook based they were far too here's how you read a PL and here's how you make a projection and those skills are important but just tell me how i'm gonna make that goddamn phone ring right? Like that's, that's the gold that I would pay 20 grand for. So obviously, obviously you're, you're onto something. You mentioned you don't have any uh, classical business training. Um, Where did you get the knowledge? When did you first learn or where did you first learn to read a profit and loss statement as an example? Where did I learn how to read a profit and loss? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, I'm sorry, is that the question? That's the question. The question is where, where so did I, you learn your I learned how to chops? read the profit and loss. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, I, uh, I think my, my internet just says a little bit choppy. Um, I actually read a book called The Lemonade Stand uh, that is uh, basically a kid's book uh, for basic accounting. And in that, it's basically it talks about how to run a lemonade stand. It goes over li- assets, liabilities. This is the first. Uh, this is the first um, accounting book or financial book that I that I ever read. Right, um, and then from there, I got a lot more interested in that topic in particular and started diving into a lot of the resources that the Harvard Business uh, Review uh, puts out. Um, which I think are great resources. Sometimes they're a bit hard to get through. Uh, and then from there, I actually started to dive into breaking down public companies as practice. So I would look at public companies. I would look at their assets, their liabilities, how they how they calculate um, you know their debt and whether it's uh, gap accounting or not, and and the ways in which they can sort of manipulate some of those things. But it has to be audited by a secondary group. And I found that to be really interesting uh, to help improve my own sort of like financial understanding of what was going on. And then if I take that lens and as a more complex business and I apply it to these pretty simple cash-based practices, I mean, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more clear in terms of what, you know, you should be doing. But, but to be, to be fair, when I first started, I would just look at my business bank account the same day each month. And I would say, Hey, I have more money in there. Uh, you know, it's March 15th and February 15th, you know, I have a thousand dollars more. It's awesome. I made it, I'm a thousand dollars, uh, you know, better. And, uh, 
that's a terrible way to do it, right? But but did that for probably a good solid six to twelve months before I started to realize well, I don't know shit about this, right? And it was it was a lot of it was because we had success without knowing what even what we were doing was was what was causing it, right? We just kind of were trying to be amazing with our patients, and just because we want to get them great results. We actually cared and go fucking figure. That's like kind of rare. So, you know, that turned into people just sending a lot of folks our way. And then it was like, damn, we got a business on our hands. We got to figure this out because um, it definitely wasn't something I was expecting to do. So I think for a lot of people, you can learn through, uh, you know, self-education. And then what really, really helped me was getting business mentorship. You know, one of the first things I did was I signed up for business coaching with the E-Myth group. This was back when they were doing um, a it was like a pilot program for smaller businesses. They don't even take businesses that were the size of we were at. I think I was around like $200,000 in gross revenue a year. And they were taking like 50 businesses that were of that size. And I got assigned a business coach that I worked with. And it's like the, it, it was $18,000. It was the most expensive, like it was so expensive to me at the time, uh, to, to invest in that. And I had this, this business mentor and all this curriculum to go through. And I would say after that year, that was like the most impactful thing that I did to really learn it. But it really started with self-education. I think a lot of people can start there to begin with. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure, I'm sure they taught you a ton. E-Myth, uh, it might've been revisited or something like that. That that's the book that like opened my eyes to, just entrepreneurship. Uh, I was a absolute clinical geek, not just clinical, but manual therapist geek. Like I was just, that's what I wanted to do with my life until I read the e-myth and I'm like, holy crap, I think I could support a family doing this, like geeking out over being a clinician. So, um, I'm sure that was super valuable. Um, I did a similar, uh, also a crash course in business, um, through, it was through Goldman Sachs, um, and and it was locally based. Baltimore had one, yeah. and you had to apply. And um, it was man, that's where I learned all of my um, call it accounting acumen or lack thereof. But like the nuts and bolts, why is that not taught in graduate school, Danny? Can you please get on someone's teaching roster to to educate? Well, I I know why it wasn't taught in mine, right? Because I was. I went through a military program and there was no reason that they would want to teach us anything about business. It was, I, I remember we, we actually had a, um, we, we did actually have one administrative course because sometimes PTs will, they'll, they'll do what's called like a lateral transfer into a, it's still healthcare, but it's a different, it's a different job. And they're basically like the MHAs of hospitals. So the ones that are running hospitals and you'll have them like jump shipped there and whatever. So we had like a very small course on that. And, uh, and, and that was it. And I think that the average school though, what they're teaching is they're teaching to, so that people can pass the national boards. Um, and they want to make sure that their, their completion percentage of people that are passing on the first go is really high. Uh, I'm assuming they, that's something they, they really track closely. They want to make sure everybody, they have a really high pass rate. And if you really, you know, if you think back to the national boards, when you took it, there's a lot of shit on there that you're never, ever going to do again. Sure. And I had plenty of, plenty of professors that said, Hey, we're teaching you this. Don't worry. Never gonna do this in the clinic, but you need to know this for the test. So, you know, I think that they're, they're basically teaching to the test, which is a real problem uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think in, in some ways, too, I don't think you have to make it business specific. Most people suck at understanding what to do with money to begin with. Yep. Like, personally, they have weird psychology issues around it, positively or negatively, depending on how they grew up. Um, and I think a lot of people benefit from just basic financial education, whether it's in elementary school, middle school, yeah. high school, or okay. if it's college or, you know, whatever, it's just something that I think most people are bad at. 
Uh, I think you're, I think you're right. You, you bring up a good point, but at the very least, man, it, if guys like you are on faculty at graduate schools, how that would have helped me just, just tremendously. Uh, ironically, the one business class we did have at, at my graduate program, we had to create a business model um, and a business plan and submit it. And I submitted true sports. Like, like the way I function now as, as a private practice is what I submitted basically to a T, which is humbling in that I haven't come up with a new idea in 15 years, but but I submitted it, and I think I got like a C minus on it. But but it worked. But it works, obviously. So I just wish that they were like educating around that, right? Like, how could you have taught me to do that better instead of saying this is a C minus effort? Um, I think would have been really helpful. So, okay, let, let's kind of walk through a little bit about how you got to where you are. You leave the military. First of all, thank you for your service. Um, appreciate it. And, and you go and you open up a cash sure. practice in Georgia in a windowless office in the corner of a CrossFit gym. Looking back at it, what would you have done right. differently? <laughs> Is that right? What, what would you have done differently when you started your practice? Well, I would have picked a different part of town probably. Um, so I didn't know, like I'm not from Atlanta. Like, you know, I went to college in central Georgia, but I'd only been to Atlanta for like Braves games. Right. So I didn't really know a ton of people here. Um, and I didn't know the city very well. So, you know, when, when I got out of the military and, and, and to be honest, I didn't get out of the military to start a business. I got out of the military to teach for mobility wad. Like I, uh, Kelly got offered the opportunity Kelly to teach will do that and to primarily, <laughs> yeah, Yes. Uh, yeah. And he, and he was like, you know, he was on something cause he was like, yo man, we get a lot of, we get a lot of military uh, requests and he wanted me to come on and stand up their tactical department and, and take, take a point on, on a lot of the military courses. And I taught a lot of civilian stuff as well, but, but I left cause I wanted to do that and I couldn't actually stay in the military and teach for the military. You can't charge, like if you're a federal employee, you can't charge the federal government uh, as a contractor, because they're already paying you to be whatever your job is. So I just, I literally couldn't stay in. I had to make a decision and I decided to get out. And that's what I did. And for the first year that I was out, I mean, dude, I was on the road uh, probably three times uh, a month all over the U S and the world teaching for, for the Storettes. And this practice that we started was really a side project. It was something that just gave me something to do during the week, a couple days. Cause I didn't, uh, I wasn't intending to treat people at that much. I wanted to practice stuff that I was teaching other people. So I wanted to treat like two days a week. So I had my schedule open two days a week and I found the cheapest uh, space that I could find. Um, and did like, just was like, yep, I'm in man. Cool. It's to connect to a gym. I have space I can use. And dude, like it's a sketchy part of town where I started my office, like day one, this is the first time, first day I have patience. I walk out and some dude like breaks some, somebody's window to pull a, a bag out of it. And there's a personal trainer that's there that had, had uh, previously played in the NBA and had played overseas. And he was a huge human being. He jumps off the loading dock, runs this guy down, pins him on the ground and until the cops get there and they, they arrest this guy. And this is, I'm walking out with like my second patient ever. Uh, and the person was like, whoa, is this normal? And I go, I don't know, dude. Like, I, I don't know anything about this 
area and yeah. it was a super sketchy area we should see crime all the time and uh you know i mean i didn't think much of it just because but it definitely limited our growth like we weren't <laughs> in the best part of the city and as soon as we like moved to a better part of the city we, we saw significant growth because of it right so that was a big mistake i would say definitely learn your area your demographics um but you know i mean yeah it just sort of was unintentional we just got busier and busier and busier and uh fortunately for me my wife used to run nonprofits. She has a master's degree in nonprofit management, and she is a integrator. She's super organized. And I was just like, everything was on paper. I had fucking sticky notes. And she's like, Danny, we can't do this. Like, we were, this, this is actually working. We're going to make this into a real business. So she took over basically as like a COO running operations. I was the person in the community trying to get business and developing relationships and seeing patients and training our other staff. And it, it worked really, really well. So, you know, just thankfully for me, I just married the right business partner unknowingly because uh, it, it, it was a perfect fit for what we were doing. So what was, and I think you might have hit on it, but what was the smartest thing that you did while you were starting up that business? The smartest thing that I ever did was get really good at um, educating people locally. So when I look back at, what drove our business. Um, and this wasn't necessarily something that I was doing on purpose to drive business. This was something I was doing to help sharpen my skill set for teaching for the Sturettes. And so I was teaching on all these component pieces that I would present on uh, as part of the different courses that we had at CrossFit gyms, at any gym, honestly, workplace. I did a bunch of lunch and learns with this stuff. And I was testing stuff that I was going to be presenting because I wanted to make sure it was like really dialed in and it was clear. And so I was doing that sometimes, you know, every week, twice a week, uh, all over the city of Atlanta. I mean, I probably taught, I probably taught somewhere around 60 to 70 locations in and around the city between businesses and gyms and all kinds of other, uh, you know, like locations in the first year. So just me doing that as I look, when I look back on it, I was like, damn, how many people was that? And not, not obviously all of them came in to see me, but I had a lot of patience from that. Um, you know, and then I also, it's like you leave an impact on somebody when you do a good job of teaching something in person, if they can remember that and then they show somebody else something, I mean, that one year of me doing that probably to this day still pays dividends for that business. Even when we don't even own it anymore. So I think that like, I'm such an advocate for being involved in the community with our businesses because I saw firsthand what that did for us. And, and if you can do that and you can educate somebody, that's a really unique skill. They can really drive a business and grow a business. Yeah. It's, it's also a skill that we went to school to learn. And, and I've heard you hit on this piece, which is we're yeah. really good at getting patients to buy into a treatment uh, program, to an intervention, to an exercise. Uh, we spent years honing that craft. Similarly, we're great educators, right? So if we can take that and instead of just applying it clinically, but apply a marketing aspect to it, we're already should be masters at that as physical therapists. And I think one of the things you, you talked about was it was exactly that was, hey, we're edu we're already educating our clientele. We're educating our patients. That's how we know we're good PTs. That's what we're taught to do. Now we just got to say, I want to get you to commit to four, six weeks of a treatment package. And then you begin to sell that. And now, now you're an entrepreneur. That's the difference between clinician and entrepreneur, but the skills are so yeah. similar. Yeah, they so, really are. See, I mean, the thing with sales that I found interesting 
you know, it, it's a dirty word in our profession. Shouldn't we're selling be. people on shit Shouldn't all the time. Be. You know right? who's good at and it? You know fortunately who's good at for it? me, Kairos are good at it. Why are they? They're yeah. so good at it. It shouldn't yeah. be a dirty word to, to us. Yes. I agree, you know, and I, you know, I've, I, I've had a chance to work with a lot of chiropractors with their businesses at this point. And what I've come to realize is they don't have a choice, right? So like, here's what, here's what happens if you're a chiropractor, you can either go be somebody's associate and they get treated worse than us, you know, as like a staff PT, um, or you go out on your own and it's still, it's not, there's not a single chiropractic university that's attached to a legitimate medical university. So they got an uphill battle out the gate, man. And they have to understand how to, um, you know, eat what they kill. They don't have a choice. So I think they're better at it because they don't have any options. Their, their life is harder from the get go than us. We can go get jobs at many different, uh, locations and settings and big practices. So I think that's the biggest difference. Plus it's something that they definitely get a a good bit more business education than we do in school, probably because they know that's what's going to happen. Um, but we don't get a ton of it. And I just think that what people just have to realize when they start looking at how they apply this in the lens of their own business is they already have 90% of the skill. Um, they, they are getting people to do these weird exercises and to make habitual life changes uh, on a regular basis. That is actually harder than getting somebody to commit to you know, a, a plan of care with you and paying for it. I think the thing that holds people up more than anything is that they have a, a, a real challenge with money, talking about money and perceiving what they value themselves uh, at. Even though they know they're a great clinician and they see what they're doing with people, they don't really know how to value that or if they're undervaluing themselves or overvaluing themselves, or maybe they get real nervous whenever they bring up money because it was something in their household that no one ever talked about. And, you know, it was like this real taboo thing. So I find more people have to struggle and get past the money psychology side of it and actually understand, you know, what that means to them and, and, and how to view it in a, in a better lens. And once they do that, then all of a sudden they're selling like ninjas, uh, because they, they already have the skill set and they have a product people want. I mean, the service people want it. Uh, and, and we do a good job. And it's just been really, really cool to watch people learn that and apply that because it's not just in the business that that helps so much. It's like, it's like having conversations with anybody outside of uh, the clinic that's just so much better. You're more assertive. You're more confident with how you say things. You know, you, you understand sort of like some of the econo- uh, economics of the world a bit differently, and you can be more confident with money decisions around your household. So I think that it's, it's a really cool skill to learn and probably the best side effects of anything that we see people on the business side that, that pick it up. Yeah. How did you learn your worth? Man, that's a good question. Um, you know, a lot of it for me, when I got out, this is my goal. You know, I was making about seven, I think it was $78,000 a year as a, as a captain in the army when I got out. So I said, all right, I just got to replace that and I'm good, right? Like (laughs) that's a lateral transfer for me, you know, and, and if I make more than that, awesome. Um, and when, when I sat down to really build out like a basic plan of like, what am I going to charge? How am I going to find people? You know, I remember I had a conversation with two different people. One was Kelly and one was somebody, uh, her name's Teresa Larson, who used to teach for, uh, the, the Stretz as well. And she has a company called movement RX. She's a badass. She's, she's just like doing all kinds of cool stuff now, but she had started her practice with her husband. Hold on. Um, should, should, a, I, should I get uh, her on the pod? I guess it was a, maybe six. Do I need to have her on the podcast? Yeah, she'd be awesome. She's she's really cool. Okay, put me. Yeah, in touch. Teresa Larson's awesome. Okay. Um, and her husband's awesome too. They they uh, I think they actually might have recently sold that business because she wrote a book that kind of blew up and she teaches all over the place. But uh, 
anyway, she, I had a conversation with them and I was kind of talking about what I was going to charge. And both of them were like, dude, you're not charging enough money. You know, I want to charge like a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kelly wanted me to charge like 200 and Teresa and pair of same thing. And, you know, so I was like, well, maybe I meet you guys in the middle at 150. And they're like, it needs to be higher than that. So 175 was what I charged. And I actually didn't think that, I didn't think anybody would pay that. And I thought, all right, well, I'll just do this to, to say I did it. And then I'll just drop it down when it's not working. And the very first patient I had, this is actually, it's probably the most impactful, uh, you know, business interaction that I had. His name was Sam. He was a, uh, defense contractor. He did like, uh, shooting and self self self-defense, like hand to hand stuff for, um, police departments all over the Southeast. And he lived in Alabama. He drove like three hours to come to my office. So he was like, how much time do you have? And I told him, I got, I got a three hour block. I'm busy after that. I didn't have shit to do, by the way. I, I didn't have anything after that. Eight hours. But I was like, I, I want to at least sound like I did. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I got, I didn't want to be like, I got all day. How much time do you want? So I, I told him I got three hours from like nine to 12 and he goes, okay, I'll take all three. So he shows up and this guy's just like, got all kinds of problems. He'd been a career police officer, you know, sitting in kit in his car, like all day, just getting out, running after yeah, people, like all kinds of injuries. Yep. And a mess, such a hard job, man. And I, so we're working through stuff and for three hours, we went through all kinds of different assessments and I built out this program for him. And mind you, this is June in uh, Atlanta, Georgia in a CrossFit gym with no air conditioning. So we're sweating all over each other. And he's just this big, big dude. And we go back to my, to my office and, and I'm like, okay, man, I'm going to email you all this other stuff. And, um, he pulls out a wad of cash. And he comes over and gives me like a big bear hug. Uh, sweaty. Like he squeezed me so hard, it popped my back. Hug. Yes. <laughs> like, dude, a big sweaty bear hug squeezed me so hard, my back popped. And I, I remember I was like, oh, cool. That was, um, thanks for coming, for making the trip. And he just put it down on the desk. I didn't even count. I didn't count it because I didn't, didn't know that's, that looked like a rookie move. And uh, he's like, that was awesome. Thank you so much. And he left. And dude, I remember sitting there and I was like, this, this actually worked. Oh my God. And I, I opened up the little wad of cash. It was $525, which is my hourly rate times three hours to the dollar. And I remember I was like, holy shit, like people will pay this. They were right. You know, they, they were right about it. So I don't think it would have been as impactful if somebody would have paid me with a credit card, mm -hmm. but because he paid me with cash and he was so excited to do it. And he had driven such a far distance. Right. I, I remember it was like such a big confidence, confidence boost for me because you know, like that was a great moment. And then I had this really tough couple of weeks where I wasn't really getting anybody to come and see me. And, you know, I feel like if that hadn't happened, man, who knows, I would have like really probably changed my business model a lot. And, and, uh, and it, it was big. So I think getting cash from somebody in that first patient, um, really set, set the tone for what I felt like I could do. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. And, and you never realize how, how far that'll go and, and how one interaction will go. It obviously buoyed you for, for weeks, um, if not years. So, you know, obviously you're the cash-based guru. Yeah. Steal man me the case for starting a cash-based practice. Because you're talking to a dude who lives in the in-network world currently. Yeah. 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 And I think if you're talking scale, I don't think it's a comparison. In-network, the scale, the exit opportunities are much better, right? So if you're trying to 
you know, really scale to a big service-based business and you want to have an exit to probably private equity or a hospital and have a big, you know, big multiple attached to that, um, a cash-based practice is not the right uh, decision for that individual. But here's what I see uh, happening and has really been happening quite a lot for the last five years in particular. You know, the average debt that people are coming out of school with is somewhere in the range of 150 grand per the APTA. And if you look at that person and they say, okay, I've got 150 that I owe and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to make, let's call it 75 to $80,000 in a job where I'm going to be seeing a bunch of patients that I really don't have any interest in seeing. Uh, why am I doing this? Because then I, they start to really regret the decision that they made and they start to get really burnt out. And then they start to look at other careers. You know, it, it's very common to see that uh, happen these days. And what I see when, when, I first started like talking to schools. I, I, I talk to schools constantly about cash-based stuff. I'm doing it, you know, next week for a school that's here in Georgia. And there's one school in particular. It's uh, uh, in, in uh, Indiana, Southern Indiana. Um, and my buddy, Jeremy Hauser is one of the professors. And for the last five years, he's had me talk to them. And the first year that I talked to them, no one had a single damn question for me. No one knew what I was talking about. No idea. Fast forward five years later, I have so many questions. People are so aware of it. And I'll tell you who it is. It's the, it's the PTs that are interested in sports med, performance-based work. The PTs that are interested in like going to the gym and they want to read about Peter Atia's shit and Kelly's stuff and, and learn about nutrition and stress management and sleep and you know movement nerds and all that stuff. Those people, the exchange is basically this. You spend a couple grand for the equipment that you might need to start this business get some low subleased overhead space that's probably going to run you anywhere between $250 and $1,000 a month, depending on the city that you're in. And within a six to 12 month period, you can replace and or increase your earning potential by working for somebody else. Yep. If you do it the right way, yep. it's very common for us to see PTs be able to double their take-home pay just by having a moderately successful cash-based practice in this performance niche. So I think for that person, it's kind of a no-brainer to at least try, because you're not gonna bankrupt yourself. Uh, you're already in $150,000 worth of debt. What's a couple extra grand to you at that point, right? It's worth a try. And I think that's what I'm seeing a lot of people do um, because the exchange for the effort is significantly higher. Yeah, I totally see that. How do you bring on staff to a model like that? What precludes them from doing exactly what you did? Yeah, it's a great question. This is, this is the probably biggest challenge to scale. Um, and the barrier to entry for in-network is higher. Also, the visibility to the business is much harder to understand. So, you know, it, it definitely... Uh, keeps people from maybe um, transitioning to an in-network practice sure. more so than in a cash-based practice. And the reason that people stay, and I, I, what I see is a lot of people, uh, entrepreneurs think everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. And that's not the truth. Uh, there's plenty of people that just want to have a cool job and be a part of a great community, mm -hmm. uh, a great culture. And these are the, the, the three big things that are either going to keep somebody or drive them away. Because the, the very first thing is hiring that, hiring that first hire is the hardest. It's the hardest because you have your business doesn't look that cool. Uh, they're kind of taking a chance on you, and you know you're selling them on the vision of what your company is going to turn into. So you have to be a really clear, strong leader in order for that to happen, and you have to give them an opportunity to really grow within the company as well. Um, so what stops them is culture. You know what stops them is uh, the actual like 
consistency of their paycheck, so the structure in which you have them in. If you have them in a really low base salary with a lot of uh, bonus comp, like the likelihood that they leave goes up a lot more than if they have a super steady income. Um, and then the other thing is the patient population they work with. So if you can provide an amazing patient population for a clinic nerd that just wants to be awesome at what they do, like that's an ideal person for these practices where they're, they're like, dude, I'm dying in this high volume clinic. I need more time to work with my patients because I know I can get amazing results. And I just want highly motivated people. They're going to do what I say so that I can actually test. I, I want to test drive this shit that I built. They got this Ferrari and they can drive it in first gear in, in a high volume clinic. You put them in a clinic where people are one-on-one -on -one with them for an hour, dude, all of a sudden like, it opens it up for them and they love it. So finding the right fit, the right person, and then taking all the bullshit away from them to make their life better or better life work-life balance. That's the key. And I mean, that's really the key for any business. Cause it's going to be, you know, stability of their paycheck culture, um, you know, and then work-life balance. Can you make their life better? Because if you can do that, I mean, dude, we can poach a lot of people from in-network practices that want nothing to do with high volume, but they don't want the exchange because they think it might be an inferior job um, in a lot of ways. But if you can make it level, all of a sudden they have a better life. They can make just as much money. They're not documenting for two hours every Saturday morning, you know, and, uh, and they get to work with the population that they love. I think from what we've seen with hiring clinicians, that's a win-win, and they love it. Yeah. What is that split that you see really keeping people in? Base salary or guaranteed salary versus uh, bonus structure? I think it has to be a pretty high base salary. Um, and what a lot of people will do, you can you can find people that are new grads that are just interested in mentorship. And they're, they're like, dude, I'm down. You pay me four grand a, a month. I have an opportunity to make some you know, some bonuses, like I'm in because I want to learn, but they're also transient, right? Um, they're going to be gone in a year or two. Uh, th and that's, that's actually quite normal for the people that are graduating in general. They just view everything as like everything, everybody's a free agent, right? So you got to give them a real reason to want to stay. Um, and if you can get their base salary up to a point where, you know, it is really close to what somebody's making somewhere else, uh, and they have an opportunity to have bonuses attached to that based on volume, then I think you're good to go. Where, where we see most people, like if you can have a base salary, and it's very regional, by the way, you know, so if you're in D.C., it's going to be different than Atlanta versus, uh, you know, if you're in, in L.A. or something, or maybe in the middle of Texas where cost of living is very low. But in Atlanta, at a minimum, what we're seeing is people really need to, to be in, the, in probably the low to mid-70s as a base, if not uh, a bit higher than that, and then have the opportunity to have bonuses that really bring them up into the, you know, mid-80s to, to, uh, to 90s. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we're, we're kind of seeing the same thing, even, even in network, um, where you're kind of living right in that sweet spot. Um, I guess, I guess the next question is how big have you seen these cash practices get? Yeah, I, I think they're just starting to scale. It's interesting. I mean, we've seen uh, a number that have scaled up past seven figures. Um, there's, there's actually a lot that are considered out-of-network practices, which you could kind of consider. I mean, I, I do consider those in the same, the same lens. There's many of those that are, have scaled to multiple locations, you know, especially in the Northeast. Some of the laws have changed on some of this. But um, you know, I, I think that you can grow them into probably – I mean, it's my own, my own limiting belief, but probably three to $5 million, uh, you know, businesses with, with each practice. Like if we look at one of these practices, if you're staffing this correctly, right. And let's say you have, uh, <clears throat> a location where you can have three providers and yourself still doing some amount of work. Um, you know, you're looking at probably 
800,000 to 1.2 million in revenue that you can generate in one of those facilities. Because the other area that we have a really distinct advantage is actually in training. So one of the things that we found is doing things like semi-private training with the, the, the actual clinicians running it, it's such an uneven uh, like playing field for us to compare ourselves to like uh, Orange Theory yeah. or even a personal trainer, especially when that person has taken you from being in terrible pain to all of a sudden like you can do whatever you want. Now, all of a sudden, they want to do whatever you say. And the premium you can charge for that is pretty significant um, for what they're for what you can charge them for what they're paying. So I think that the recurring revenue side of three different sort of aspects, one is not really recurring, but reoccurring in the business would be patient visits. Um, a lot of people are coming back for ongoing work and they want to do stuff proactively in those models. Two would be like some sort of training model in person, whether that's one-on-one, -on -one, small, small group, semi-private. Um, and then the third one is remote programming. So the digital element of those businesses. So layering on programming for people that are, you know, not wanting to come in on a regular basis, but they want somebody to intelligently put together what they're going to do at their home gym or when they're traveling or whatever it might be. And those three, cause, cause we can just look at volume, visit volume, and that's only one variable. What people forget about are these other ones that are actually quite significant and recurring, which adds a massive amount of value to these businesses. So once you dial those in on top of the patient visits, that's where it becomes a really solid business. It can have, you know, profit margins that are going to be 30, sometimes 40%, depending on how you set these businesses up. Uh, I just got a P&L shot of one of our practices that we work with. Let me see if I can pull this up real quick. Um, I'll tell you the exact numbers. So in May, uh, their practice top line did 121,000 uh, in revenue, and their net income was $47,899. Uh, so, you know, if we look at the profitability of these businesses at scale, they're pretty solid for service-based businesses. Um, you know, and, and again, like I said, you just can't, you're not getting fed by blue cross or whatever. And you just have all these, you know, visits that are coming in and evals and you got to scale really quickly. I don't think you can do that because it's going to take years to grow to a business that size. But once it's there, it's really hard to screw up, super hard to screw up because you have no dependency whatsoever on basic re referral sources or insurance. Like you basically would have to be a huge dick to everybody and they would leave. That's the only way you mess that up. Yeah. Okay. My fear in in going cash because I started, I started our business nine years ago and I was kind of like, what do I do? Do I want to be in network? Do I want to be on a network? Do I want to be cash? Um, I had far gotten over the, what am I worth conundrum? I was willing to ask for a million dollars a session and, and, yeah. and I went in network, right? <clears throat> and my thought was, how am I going to grow this thing? And how do I make money when I'm not there? Right? How do I generate revenue when I'm not there? Or, yeah. you know, it's by design. My practice is not called Yoni's PT. I don't want people showing up to see Yoni. I want them showing up for true sports to know that they're going to get one-on-one -on -one care for 45 minutes in yeah. an elite level environment. So uh, those were my thought processes. I think that's how you screw it up is you start to pull the owner away in the cash model, if he is the guy, if that is the name that's generating that business, right? So how do you guard against that in the cash model? Well, I mean, I, I did it right. So like, it's, it's a different, it's a difficult transition. Um, but what typically happens is, you know, you go from schedule availability to saturation, uh, if you're doing a good job of keeping people around on a recurring basis, mm -hmm. that's, that is something that, you know, I didn't know I was doing that, but 
I was. And I had all these people that would just come see me once, twice a month, forever, basically. Uh, and so at a certain point, I couldn't take any new clients. So it was either you come see someone that has trained with me or you can go somewhere else. You know, that's the decision. And for most people, they're going to work with the person that you've worked with, especially, you know, if you hire the right people, then, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to be the right fit for your culture, which is what people are looking for. And from then, uh, from there, it snowballs the same way with them. And then eventually they have less and less new patients and they have more and more recurring. Um, and that's how we see these snowball. But at the point when we sold our business, I hadn't seen a patient in man, probably 14 months. Um, yeah, completely. And I hadn't seen a new patient in probably two and a half years. So, you know, for, for me, I think it just, it requires you actually removing yourself from the business, which a lot of people don't want to do. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that either, because for a lot of folks, they want to be that clinical mentor. They want to have their hand in that. They just, they don't, they can't do it the whole time because they're trying to run a business, but like this sort of sweet spot lifestyle, bigger lifestyle business, I see a lot of people have a lot of satisfaction in those models where they're still in it. They're still seeing patients. They have this small culture and they like it. They like being a part of that. Um, I think what you've done is really smart to be able to say, hey, we're in network. We're still working with you one-on-one -on -one in, in, a, in, a, in a 45 minute you know, period of time. And in order to scale that and actually be able to have your average visit rate be enough for you to be able to say, we're not gonna make you see 20 people a day. Like that's a hard thing to do. And to be honest, that that's hard to compete with, with the businesses that we work with, because on paper, it's the same, unless that person has a terrible right. deductible, which a lot of people do. Sure. We got to keep that in mind too. It's just like insurance benefits kind of suck now. Yep. So especially when those roll over, the playing field is completely leveled. You're out of pocket completely until you meet it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, we've done well taking, cause now we've gone, um, as, as we've multiplied and spread out a little bit, we come up against cash-based models or even out of network models um it's real we find it's really hard to rehab an acl out of network i mean you got to have uh, some serious um yes um like some serious net worth to do that and so you're exactly right like our, our model we, we have figured that out yep. like how to manage our overhead and and how to construct um salaries and comp and stuff like that um it, it is it's hard to go up against what is what kind of multiples is a cash business generating on an exit? You know, from what I've seen, it's anywhere between three to six times EBITDA. Um, some people will have, and some people will value this differently, right? It's very subjective, mm -hmm. but that's what we've seen. Mm -hmm. Anywhere between three to six. Six is at the high end. That would be, you know, you're not involved whatsoever. You have multiple locations and a long, you know, track history of, or a long history of uh, being very profitable. Um, but for a lot of them, it's going to be somewhere around, you know, a, a three. It would be on the lower side because these are going to be smaller businesses. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's necessarily the right play. Like we sold our practice because we're so busy with PT biz that it was a time thing. Yeah. You know, I actually love running the business. My wife and I miss the business, actually. Not some of the problems that are associated with running a business, but the people. We miss the culture uh, that we created. It's a fun place to be. But, you know, I think the better bet for these types of businesses is actually to really long-term look at how can you create, uh, you know, a partnership model with people that can be running the business and have some skin in the game and you still own it and you have a legitimate passive revenue business that is uh, the spitting off 
dividends, far more dividends than any stock you can possibly invest in um, for as long as that business is around. And you can be very, very passive uh, with it. I think that sort of autopilot asset is a far more valuable way of going about it that can generate a lot of financial security versus, you know, hey, you get a 3x multiple, what are you doing in three years if you don't have another thing that's replacing that, right? You may have a a big chunk of money, but you're going to burn through it pretty quick if you don't have something else that's generating income for you. Yeah, I think that's that's a great way to look at it. How much on average, like if if you had to average across all the 250 some odd businesses that you're working with now, um, what is the average revenue generation for a staff PT in a cash business? that go through sorry man I, I didn't hear what you said it broke up a little uh, bit it was a genius question i'll see if i can reframe no i didn't hear it. it um okay what, what's that yeah, yeah i'd love to hear it i'm like super <laughs> anticipating like i want to hear it. <laughs> what, what's the average um revenue generated by a staff pt in a cash-based business yeah it depends on where you're where you're at um and really heavily what type of uh uh, what, what the average visit rate is, yeah. uh, as well as if they're doing anything else. From what we've seen, the average is going to be somewhere between two hundred and ten and two hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year, uh, depending on the, the the provider. Most providers, uh, you know, it's interesting the metrics that that we are able to pull on some of this kind of kind of interesting. The like the average cash provider is going to settle in somewhere around like one hundred and eight visits a month. And we use, this is when you account for vacation and holidays and, you know, all of that. So they'll, they're going to see about 108 visits a month. You know, so if, if you're saying, let's say the average visit rate is just to make our math easy about, you know, 200 uh, bucks a visit, then, you know, all of a sudden it puts us in the range of, you know, 240 or so uh, annually uh, in terms of uh volume in revenue generated, you know, somewhere in there, obviously it could be more or less depending on the clinician, but that's about the average that, uh, that we'll see. And then from there, it's just a matter of looking at, okay, you know, what's compensation, what's the structure, what's the overhead, um, you know, and how are you going to actually like build that comp model out? Um, but you know, for, for most people, that's still going to be less than like, for instance, friends of mine that are running in, in network practices that are higher volume. I mean, they're going to be somewhere in the range of in the low threes, you know, like, so there's a big gap there that, that we, you know, can't really make up, uh, that we have to make up with efficiency in other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so give me some of those ways. How do you, how are you more efficient there? Well, I, I love the recurring side of it because what's cool about that is I think a lot of people want the opportunity to work with people long-term, like they want to help them at least the people that we work with, they want to help them with their health and wellness. They want to be the quarterback of their health and wellness. It's kind of the way that we look at it. And in order to do that, you have to have a long-term relationship with people. The other thing that's cool about that, it's not just the volume, it's predictability in their, in their pay and in revenue, but it also comes down to the fact that like, they get a, a slightly easier visit. Like If you're seeing somebody that you've seen for a year and you're working with them on accountability about some health thing that you're working with them on, it's not nearly as mentally draining as uh, a new patient that has three different issues that you're trying to solve at one time. So I think from a burnout side, 
it's far easier to function in these types of practices for much longer because you're not getting bombarded so much with uh, complexity. The other thing is documentation is just minuscule in comparison. We don't have all these questionnaires we have to fill out for Medicare and all these other things. And I used to get this when I worked in this clinic that I told you I went for this, this manual therapist. It was awesome. And it was like every other month, they, they're like, dude, we're just going to add this one little questionnaire. It's going to take you two minutes. It's like, yeah, dude, two minutes for somebody that's tech savvy. I have primarily 75-year-old women uh, and men that don't know how to use a laptop, for God's sake. So this is going to take me 20 minutes every time they come in. Yeah. And so we just layer on stuff that took me away from what I really want to do, which was to help my people. So I think the quality of the actual like job is a big one. And the other thing, too, is that we don't need as big of a footprint. Um, we don't have really super high marketing costs uh, when it comes to like running it correctly. You can be really lean and efficient. You don't need as many new patients. Like You need about 10 new patients per provider in order for them to grow a, a really solid schedule if they're they're doing the right uh, you know things on the back end so that's that's where i think we can make up uh, a big difference is we can have lower overhead uh and also we can we don't need as much new volume we don't we don't have to play that eat what you kill game as much which is is really far less stressful like having not done that and then done it it's just like i would never go back to just a churn and burn model because it's just so hard to predict yeah yeah all those are all those are great points, and, and those are great ways <clears throat> to to kind of figure that out. You're also you're shielding yourself against risk, right? No one's going to come in like a Blue Cross and say we're going to pay you less for the yeah. same level of service, right? Um, you're not going to have that. You're not going to have the credentialing fees. You're not going to have the billing fees, right? Billing is three to six percent off the top immediately. So, so there are a lot of really easy ways to right to kind of mitigate that that difference. Um, Really, all great pearls. Okay, tell me where Danny Matei and PT Biz is in 10 years. What do we have to look forward to? Man, I mean, in 10 years, I hope, I hope I'm doing the exact same thing. Uh, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm, not some, I'm not one to say that. Like, I'm typically, you know, I'm quick to move on to other things. It's a real blessing and curse. You know, it's a, you know, I... I Grew up in a military family. We moved every, you know, two years. I went to 11 schools before I graduated from high school. And, you know, that's that kind of sucks. Uh, and But what it does is it makes you get used to transition. So every couple of years I have this weird sense that I need to change something. And business is a great way to do that, but a terrible thing to do long term for that business. So, you know, for me, I really think that what we have an opportunity to do is to build a small army of these performance-based clinicians that have these businesses. They can hire other people like us so we can really affect more people in a positive way from a health standpoint. It, it, it's not like, I think that the business element is great. Like I love, I, I love business in general. I, I just find it fascinating. I find it a fascinating game. But when we look at what our people are doing, like in the last 12 months, our, uh, our group, cumulatively saw about 60,000 new people. And I know what these people are doing with those patients and the compounding effect, the dividends that that's going to pay for that person and their family from, from just from a health standpoint, from, you know, being more active with them on vacations to seeing your dad work out. What does that do to the, to that person's daughter, right? And their perception of, of health and what's normal. And like, that's like, for me, that's the impact that we are chasing. And we want to work with as many businesses as we can possibly do in, in a really 
uh, and still do it in, in a really great way. Um, so, you know, 10 years from now, man, I don't know, I'll take as many as we can do, uh, as many as we can help and, uh, and keep our quality and our standards really high. Because uh, I want to help, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on an annual basis see the right people and then learn this information that they can apply. And it's not just like we talk about like generational wealth is this great thing. But like, I think the concept of generational health is something that is lost on our current population, especially when it's like 42% of the population is obese. And you know, like 42% of the population is walking around obese. Like we can help with that. And we're the gateway for a lot of people that is less intimidating than a personal trainer, than a gym, because they're coming in because their knee hurts. Well, guess what? We're going to get your knee feeling better, but dude, this is just the tip of the iceberg. What about X, Y, and Z? And now we get a chance to change your life. Yeah, that's awesome and powerful. And you're doing awesome stuff with that model. You're exactly right. PTs should be the quarterback of the healthcare. PTs should be your first stop when, when something ails you, but also with routine check-ins. Like, let's actually make that vision 2020, yeah. which they tortured me with when I was in graduate school, that they said in 2020... PTs are going to be the primary yeah, care physician. Well, now we're actually starting to see that happen. It's cause Remember of, that. And it's because of dudes like you. So, yes, I appreciate your service, but I also appreciate the service you're providing now professionally because it is totally changing the way we, the clinician, look at the profession and also the way our patients look at the profession. So good on you, Danny. It's really awesome. Tell this audience of sports PTs how they can find you and best ways to get in touch. Yeah, I mean, the easiest place to find me personally is just probably on Instagram, just Danny Matei PT uh, is, the, uh, is the account. Um, physical Therapy Biz is uh, uh, physicaltherapybiz.com uh, is a great place if you want to learn more about what we're doing there. And then, you know, if you're, if you're a podcast listener and, and you're interested in the business side of things, you know, I've done a podcast twice a week for five years on on business we're rolling into the you know mid 600s in terms of episodes released uh, on the peachy entrepreneur podcast i don't see myself stopping anytime soon you know so if you want to go catch up on all the things that uh, we're learning and sharing and people that we get a chance to talk to that are sharing some really cool relevant business things um you know you go go check that out it's a pt entrepreneur podcast and you can learn more about it there um and and I, I just want to like go back to what you were saying real quick about uh, the the quarterback side of things. It doesn't have to be a cash practice for our profession to get some basic understanding of how to talk to people about sleep, movement, nutrition, and stress management. Uh, you know, if you think about how much FaceTime we get with people versus a primary care doctor, uh, it is significantly more. And especially if you find yourself in a lower volume clinic like yourself, Yoni, like that is what a great opportunity we have to start to just like drop some of this information on people to help them with some of these things. So I, I don't want to make this seem like it's exclusive just to cash practices. That just happens to be primarily who we work with because they have a lot of interest in that, in, you know, intentionally. But you know, I, it could be anybody. And I hope that bigger practices uh, start picking that up. I hope they start teaching this in school uh, because it's such a, just like it's such low hanging fruit and people want to be healthier. They don't know what to do. And there's so much damn conflicting information out there that it's confusing and they just fall back on whatever they've been doing. So anyway, I just want to make sure that people realize like that's a huge goal for me. And it, I don't care if it's cash practice owners, in-network practice owners, whatever, somebody needs to start picking that shit up because it's a huge problem. Yeah, it, it is a huge problem. And me living in the in-network world, 
I've done a deep dive on your podcast and I've learned a tremendous amount business wise. I mean, they're just awesome pearls in there. Your approach, j just how affable you are and easy. Um, I mean, Kelly, Kelly wouldn't steer me wrong. So I encourage everyone to, to go check out PT biz entrepreneurship yeah. podcast. It's gold. It's, it's really great stuff. So Danny, thank you for your time. As always, you know, we'll be in regular touch. Welcome to the true sports family. I really appreciate your time here, man. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a great conversation.